The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Acts chapter 2. And this evening in our study of living in wisdom, we continue our examination of the uh, Baptist acrostic. I know that most of you have been here since the beginning of our study, and so you are familiar with what I mean when I say the Baptist acrostic. And what we're doing here is we're studying some things that separate us as Baptists and Of course, there is the need for the use of discernment in everything that we do concerning Scripture. I was um, cleaning out some things just a few minutes ago in my office, and I came across this article that I'd copied down. I don't know when it was, a long time ago, but it seemed real appropriate uh, to read right now uh, concerning our subject of discernment. And I, I thought this was pretty good. It says, in discussing hermeneutics, or the study of how we interpret the Bible... The following example comes to my mind. On March the 10th, a friend of mine opened up his calendar. He has one of those devotional calendars that gives you an inspirational thought for the day. And the meditation for that morning came from Luke chapter 4. It said, if you worship me, all will be yours. That sounds really encouraging, a little bit shallow, but inspirational. Maybe it's so motivational, you'd like to look at it in your Bible. If you turn there, you would actually find out the translation is a little bit different, but you've got to fit it on a calendar, so maybe that's why they messed with the translation a little bit. Then you read a little bit more, and you realize that it's not said to you and me, it's said to Jesus. And you think, well, by extension, we're in Christ. What we have, he has. And then you read a little bit more, and you realize that this is not something the Father says to his Son. This isn't a promise from God. These are the words of Satan tempting Jesus to worship the devil. This is an inspirational calendar encouraging you to worship Satan and commit transgression. This is not an inspirational calendar. This is a calendar from hell. And it just goes to show you, misinterpretation is all around us. Just because you open your Bible doesn't guarantee you get it right. The key issue is whether we correctly understand the Scriptures. Oh, I don't know how many times that we've come across people that take scriptures out of context, misuse, have no idea at all what they're talking about. And that's one of the things that we uh, fight constantly against when we study about biblical discernment. Now, most of you, going back to the Bible acrostic, most of you uh, understand that. But in case uh, some of you haven't heard, the acrostic is um, what we do just briefly taking the letters of Baptist, and they remind us of some of the doctrines of the faith that are important to us as an identity, as the identity of us as Baptist churches. We assign doctrines to those different letters. And some of these doctrines that we have in the Baptist acrostic are believed by others, but none of them are, uh, no one else holds all of these doctrines in total as we do, that is, other than uh, churches that are of like faith in order to Berean Baptist Church and churches that are historic Baptist churches, meaning that we still hold on to the particular doctrines that were taught by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. Now, our subject this evening definitely separates us from others, and we'll see this more as I, I plan to spend 
a few weeks dealing with this part of the Baptist acrostic. Now, I want to emphasize that we are Baptists for a reason, and we use that name because generally it identifies us with these groups that believe like the apostles did going back to the first century. Uh, we believe there is a true church. We believe that the doctrines that we hold to are the same as those doctrines that are in the New Testament. And we uh, believe that all of the doctrines that the church holds were given to us during the New Testament period. So we don't hold any doctrines that are newer than the New Testament. Everything was delivered to us in that first century. And then when the canon of Scripture was closed, the biblical revelation was over. And so we don't have any doctrines that are not found in the New Testament. And this is because we believe the Scriptures are fully sufficient for our uh, faith and our practice. And uh, so we're not going to believe anything that's not supported by the Scriptures. But as I say that, there, there, there's kind of a note that I have to add here. It's a sad note, and that is many Baptist people have departed from these distinctives that we teach. And so the name Baptist doesn't distinguish, it, distinguish us as much as it used to because people don't really understand what it means to be a Baptist when they see all of these people that believe all these different doctrines that we don't hold to. And so it, this is critical for us to understand. Maybe, maybe sometime we're going to have to be called by a different name. Maybe the name Baptist won't define us anymore because people are so mixed up about it. Now, through the centuries, yet it's in fact our enemies that named us. And at some point, we might very well have to acquire a different name. And that's because there are so many Baptist churches that have abandoned these distinctives. So maybe we just, or maybe we need to add another modifier to Baptist. A few years ago, we dropped the modifier fundamental because that word has changed so much. We believe all the fundamentals of the faith because we dropped the name fundamental doesn't mean that we don't believe in fundamentals, but we dropped the name because it means a different thing today than it once did. So unofficially, We've sort of adopted uh, the word historic, that we are a historic Baptist church. Another name that we might put in front of it that I really like is, you see sometimes, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I always know whose company I'm in when I see that description in front of Baptist, a Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Now, in our study of this acrostic, I've told you that it's not a substitute for a systematic theology. It's not intended to be that. It's only a representation of specific doctrines that we hold to, that we recognize as historic distinctives of the true church. And these seven doctrines that are represented by the Baptist acrostic are things that we do believe as Baptists, and we don't accept any criticism that because it's not a systematic rendering of these doctrines in order as one would flow to another, that it's not valuable. Oh, it is only what it pretends to be, and that is a mnemonic to help us to remember these different things just by using that acrostic. So we've discussed the first three letters and what they stand for. The B in Baptist stands for biblical authority. I hope you can fill these in before I actually get to them. Uh, a stands for the autonomy of the local church. P is the priesthood of the believer. And then our subject tonight is T, the first T in Baptist, which stands for two ordinances. Now, our, our scripture reference tonight is Acts chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in Acts 2, verse number 37. But before I do, let me just make a, a few comments about this. This is the conclusion of the great sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost. 
And on this day, the Holy Spirit descended on the church as the fulfillment of Christ's promise that he would come, that when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit. But like many other things that the apostles didn't understand, they had no idea what it meant when the Holy Spirit would come, what would happen when he came. And when he came, the power of the Holy Spirit upon the church was absolutely unparalleled. What happened on Pentecost became the impetus of a great church movement where the gospel of Christ spread worldwide throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, uh, the known world at that time. Peter preached, the Holy Spirit convicted, and on one day there were 3,000 of, of the most hardened people against Christ who turned to him in repentance and faith. And this was even though Peter preached to them an extremely tough sermon because what he did, he told them, you are guilty of crucifying the Messiah. You are guilty of killing the one that God sent to save us, the king. You killed him. Well, Peter preached that. People believed it. About a year ago, there was a Jewish lady who writes a very, I think, a sparsely read blog. And she took me to task on a sermon that I preached. She listened to one of the sermons on the Internet, and she didn't like the sign that we had out front. And so she decided that she would write against me. And, and uh, she maintained that the Jews did not crucify Christ. And so she... Uh, used as her authority, even though being a Jew, not a Christian at all, but being a Jew, she used as her authority the Pope. And the Pope said, he's the great Christian leader, said that the Jews did not crucify Christ. Well, no matter what Pope said it, the book of Acts says numerous times, the Jews crucified Christ. There's no arguing about this. They're the ones that that made up the false charges against Jesus. They gave sworn testimony that, were, that was lies against him. They're the ones that kept that forefront. And when Pilate would have released him, the Jews insisted that he shouldn't. Now, Pilate and the Romans, of course, were complicit in the crucifixion. Pilate didn't have to crucify him. He could have let him go. But it was that insistence of the Jews that just kept on with this that he must be crucified. Now, the point that I want you to recognize here, that Holy Spirit power was so great upon the hearts of these wicked people that these ones who crucified Christ, and they very well knew that they were the ones that crucified him. They weren't arguing with Peter. We didn't do it. They knew who did it. And the Holy Spirit came. He fell on that. Peter's sermon was empowered. And 3,000 of them came to know Christ. Then there were many of the priests in the temple that also became Christians. In those first few chapters of Acts, thousands of people came to Christ through the power of the preaching, uh, that, that, that power that came through the Holy Spirit uh, as uh, the apostles preached. Now, there, there is a, a man who says that, said that he had done essentially the same thing. Well, really, that he'd had a day that was greater in his preaching than Pentecost. Now, we would maintain that there has never, ever been a day like Pentecost where 3,000 people get saved and baptized and we see things that followed. But there is a man who said that he preached on a day and there were more people saved when he preached than there was on Pentecost. That man was Jack Hiles. And his critics called it Hiles' cost but he said that he preached on this day and more than 3,000 people walked the aisles and they became believers in Christ. Well, I don't have any doubt with the tactics that he used. And um, 
that he was able to get 3,000 or more decision cards, more than 3,000 people to walk the aisle. And with their methods of counting numbers, that doesn't sound like a mystery to me. So they have the decision cards. They, they have recorded the people who walked down the aisles. But that's not the question, is it? The question is, was the Holy Spirit there? And the question is, not did they walk the aisle, not did they sign the card, but did they truly repent of their sins? Were they truly born again? Is there an experience there with Christ? And did they prove that by what happened later in their lives? And this is what you find in in Acts chapter 2, that there is proof that these people really believe because it became that great movement that reached the world for Christ. That didn't happen at Hiles' cost. You check back into that and you find that many of the people that claimed to be believers did not believe at all. There was no change in their lives at all. They're as lost as they were at the very beginning. The Holy Spirit is not there. But those tactics still survive. Those things go on. People are still preaching in the same way, still using the manipulative invitations and all of that to twist arms to get people to come down aisles and they claim that these people are saved. But here in this text, we see what conversion really looks like. And so we see the end of the message, and here's what's ha- what happened. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 37. Now when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now again, our subject tonight is the T in Baptist, which stands for two ordinances. On the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people that were added to the church. And in this text, we find both of the ordinances are observed. First, there is baptism, and then comes the breaking of bread. Now mark this, that the order of those two things are very important. First comes the baptism, then comes the breaking of bread. First people are added to the church through their baptism, then they broke bread. And just for your edification, the breaking bread of bread there means the Lord's Supper. That's what it's talking about. And so that, that gives us the scriptural order of these ordinances. Now Matt asked me a, a few weeks ago, if you need both of these ordinances to constitute a church. Well, it's true that a a church should practice both of the ordinances. Both of them are commanded, commanded, and so I would seriously doubt the validity of any church that didn't practice both. Well, baptism they would have to, but who didn't practice both ordinances. I mean, if if somebody left out the Lord's Supper and said, well, we're not going to do that, then I would seriously doubt their validity as a church. That just tells me there are many, many other things that are wrong. But from this text, we see that believers were added to the church through their baptism. Then they took the Lord's Supper. So it's the church then that authorizes baptism. And there has to be a church before the Lord's Supper can be observed. So that would tell you that the Lord's Supper is not necessary to constitute the church. The thing that does this that's so important 
is the baptism. Baptism is always first. The person that is baptized is added to the church. And then he is permitted to break bread with the church. A few weeks ago, I was reading one of the, the articles of faith of one of our sister Baptist churches. And I was very encouraged because they made this point very, very clear in their articles of faith. They said that a person who receives baptism from the church agrees that at the time they are baptized, they are added to the church for membership, and they said they would not baptize anyone who did not at the same time become a member of the church. Now, I spoke a little bit that, about that maybe a week or so ago, and uh, I told you that when I became the pastor that the practice of the church was to make church membership a two-step process. At first, you were baptized, and then you had to make a separate application to become a member of the church. And uh, I'm going to be as honest about that practice as I can. That was a scheme. Now, it's actually a scheme to count conversions without commitment. What we're actually talking about here is non-lordship salvation. So they wouldn't require uh, the... Uh, we didn't require that a person join the church at the same or become a member of the church at the same time they're baptized. And when I say it's a scheme, uh, that, that kind of thinking is that you measure success by the numbers of people that walk down the aisle. That's a successful church. How many people can you get down here? And so if you split the process into baptism and then application for membership, you got a twofer. You understand what I'm saying? You've got to get the same person down the aisle twice. That looks good, doesn't it? More people down the aisles. And it's just, a, it's just a scheme to get more decision cards. Well, Baptists who uh, do believe that the church has been given two ordinances and only two, we don't, we don't use schemes and things like that to add people to our church and try to count decisions in that way. And as another Baptist preacher said, uh, Forrest Gump, I believe, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, now, I think the first thing that we need to do, though, is to uh, explain what an ordinance is. Define ordinance. What does that mean? That we practice two ordinances of the church. What are ordinances? Well, the, the word ordinance simply means an order. It means a decree. It means a rule or regulation. And that's just what you might call a plain vanilla definition that doesn't really help us very much. And so the way to understand ordinance uh, better is to look at what's called sacraments. To take sacraments, explain what they are, and then we contrast ordinances to those. And we'll say, we do not believe in sacraments, we believe in ordinances. So let's take a look first at sacraments. In reform circles and in Catholic theology... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are considered to be sacraments. That's a viewpoint that actually distinguishes us as Baptists from others because we do not believe that the ordinances are, or these, these two acts, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are sacraments. Now, Protestants and Catholics believe they are, but they differ on the meaning of that word sacrament. So we'll take a look at sacraments first, then we'll contrast them to ordinances. Uh, both Protestants and Catholics use that term, but they don't agree what they mean. So first of all, looking at the Roman Catholic definition of it, uh, a sacrament is a means of salvation. They believe that the grace of salvation is actually given in the sacrament. So when you, when you are baptized, when you uh, take the Lord's Supper, then that is a part of your salvation. Grace of salvation is given, you, uh, given to you in partaking of those two things. 
But not only those two things, they've actually added more, which I'll discuss in just a moment. And the least that you can say about this, when you say that baptism is a requirement for salvation, or the Lord's Supper, which they call the Mass, is a requirement for salvation, is that what you've done is you've added to justification by faith alone. So now you have salvation by faith and also by the ritual, by the thing that you do. And so God's grace comes to you partially by what you do. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this in detail later, but that's what gave rise to the practice of infant baptism. If the ritual is the thing that saves, then the sooner that you do the ritual, the better. So they started baptizing babies. Uh, salvation comes to them by being baptized, and so they say, well, the baptism washes away original sin. Therefore, a baptized baby is cleansed from original sin. This is what the Catholic Catechism says about baptism. In 1279 of the Catechism, it says, The fruit of baptism, or baptismal grace, is a rich reality that includes forgiveness of original sin and all personal sins, birth into the new life by which man becomes an adoptive son of the Father, a member of Christ, and and a temple of the Holy Spirit. By this very fact, the person baptized is incorporated into the church, the body of Christ, and made a sharer, in the priesthood of Christ. Now, you might be interested in this because uh, we have had the question several times in the form class, is when, when babies die, do they go to heaven? Now, you might be surprised to learn that in official Roman Catholic doctrine, they say no, not unless a baby is baptized. This is what they say in 1283 of the Catechism. With respect to children who have died without baptism... The liturgy of the church invites us to trust in God's mercy and to pray for their their salvation. And so what that amounts to is that the Catholic Church has figured out another way that they can make money. And so here what they do is they traffic in the souls of unbaptized dead infants. And they say, well, the more that you pay, the greater and more effectual your prayers will be, and our prayers will be for them. And so you give us so much, and then we can get them out of that place, get them saved, and get them into heaven. The Catechism teaches that believers are justified by faith and baptism, which combines faith with the ritual, which is the very thing that Paul taught against in the book of Galatians. When he taught that circumcision was not to be mixed with faith for justification, He was teaching exactly what Roman Catholicism believes. That is, that's what they thought. Mix the ritual with faith, and therefore you have salvation. So the Catholic Church believes that baptism is a sacrament, that in baptism there is grace that is conferred, and they don't confine that grace to one sacrament or two, including the Mass, but they also have seven or five other sacraments, and in those sacraments you also get grace of salvation. Every one of them contains some type of grace for salvation. Now that view of of sacramentarianism and the use of the priest that's involved in all of this is known as sacerdotalism. Uh, The sacraments then have the power to convey the grace that they signify. Well, the Protestant reform view of that is different. They also use the term sacrament, and they believe that there are are only two of them, And they don't believe that the sacraments have the ability to convey grace. But instead, they believe in something that's called sacramental union, which means that the sacrament, when it's performed, that there is a real promise that is attached to it as it's done. 
The sacrament becomes the seal of the thing that it signifies. For example, baptism is not salvation, but the person who is properly baptized is sealed, and thereby he possesses the grace that baptism signifies. And so, uh, uh, really, when, when you think about this, if you, if you care, catch what's going on here, the confusion over grace signified and grace sealed as opposed to grace conferred kind of leaves your mind spinning just a little bit. So it's really hard to figure out, do they actually believe that a sacrament is necessary for salvation? Well, they say that they don't. But at the same time, they say that there is something supernatural in the sacrament. Now, the Westminster Confession in sections 2 and 3 of the ordinances says, section 2 says, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Section 3 says, the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or the intention of him that does administer it to him. Now that phrase, that phrase was added to refute Roman Catholicism that says that the priest is necessary to perform the sacrament and by the priestly action then you are saved. So they put in this little clause here to refute Roman Catholicism on this issue. So they say, neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that does administer it but upon the work of the Spirit and the work of institution which contains, together with the precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. I realize it's probably a little bit too much theology for you. Um, I think it's important, though, that we understand this. And A.A. Hodge, in his exposition of the Westminster Confession, explains these statements. He says, number one, a sacrament is an ordinance immediately instituted by Christ. Number two, a sacrament consists of two elements, an outward sensible sign and an inward spiritual grace thereby signified. Number three, the sign in every sacrament is sacramentally united to the grace which it signifies. And out of this union, the scriptural usage has arisen of ascribing to the sign whatever is true of that which the sign signifies. Number four, the sacraments were designed to represent, seal, and apply the benefits of Christ and the new covenant to believers. And then number five, they were designed to be pledges of our fidelity to Christ, building or binding us rather to his service, and at the same time, badges of our profession, visibly marking the body of professors and distinguishing them from the word. A few weeks ago, I gave a recommendation to the forum class. And I said, a book that you really ought to have in your library is The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. You ought to have that book. You ought to read that book. A second book that I recommend that you get is The Confession of Faith by A.A. A. Hodge. That is the exposition of the Westminster Confession. We agree with 90% of what that confession says. And so it makes Hodge's exposition of it valuable for us. It's a very good reading. The first time... Well, it was for me anyway. First time I read it, I was captivated by it. And so I've made it a regular practice to return to it when I'm looking up certain doctrines because it does so well in explaining these things. But what, what about Hodge here as he deals with the, with the sacrament, the sacrament of baptism in particular? Well, back to his exposition, there's a statement that he made that I read that is a dividing line. 
He said, the sign in every sacrament is sacramentally united to the grace it signifies. And out of this union, the scriptural usage has arisen of ascribing to the sign whatever is true of that which the sign signifies. We dispute that statement. Uh, there is no place in scripture that says the sign is sacramentally united to the thing that it signifies. Now remember, in the eyes of many people, that a sacrament is a means of grace. The scriptures never say that. And so it would be impossible to say that there is a scriptural usage of assigning a grace to the sign, uh, a grace to what the sign signifies. Now, just, just to give you an idea of what that means, uh, so you understand. Outside of our church, there is a banner. And that banner says, Berean Baptist Church. That is a sign. You look at that sign, and Protestants would say, that sign says that the Berean Baptist Church meets here. We don't have any problem with that. The sign, we know this, that the sign and the church are not the same thing. And that, uh, that sign says that we do meet here. So that part's fine. But what the sign doesn't do, the sign does not add anything to make that true. There is no union of the church with that sign. And so it doesn't mean that without the sign out there, we can't be the Brian Baptist Church. Now, what I want you to understand is that baptism does not establish a relationship with Christ. There is no grace in that that signifies that we, or, or means that we are sacramentally united with Christ because we've gone through baptism. And so somehow our relationship with Christ is cemented or better or sealed because we have been baptized. There is no supernatural thing that is present in baptism. Now we contrast that to the Baptist view. Baptists don't believe in sacraments. We believe in ordinances. And ordinances are memorials. They are reminders of what Christ did for us. They don't have any power in them. There is no power in that ordinance itself. It only signifies what the person has believed in his heart, what God has done in his heart. The ordinances are a means of teaching us about God and his grace, but they don't give us any grace. They just show us what we have believed. Now, this then would be the normal Baptist view of, of baptism. Uh, let me read what our church statement of faith says uh, about ordinances. This would be a little bit more restrictive than most Baptists, but does accurately represent our position. The statement of faith says, We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper, in which only the members of each particular local church, by the sacred use of unleavened bread and the unfermented fruit of the vine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Now, the important part of that statement regarding grace is that the believer has all the grace of salvation that he will ever receive at the moment that he puts his faith in Christ. There isn't any more grace of salvation to be given. We possess it all at the moment that we put our faith in Christ. And so we say then, there is no saving grace that is found in the ordinance. And then what about the sealing? Well, that sealing is done in regeneration and conversion. The ordinance only pictures what already happened to the believer. It doesn't change him in any way. It just pictures what already happened. 
And the pictures become more apparent as we study what is actually taking place in the practice and the administration of these two ordinances. That part we're going to look at a little bit later. Now let me mention again that there are only two of these. To put it simply, there are two because we only find two that are practiced on a consistent basis in the New Testament. We find two specifically commanded in the New Testament. Baptism is commanded by Christ in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go and baptize. Christ said to do this. The Lord's Supper was told to us by Jesus, or given by Jesus, who said, This do in remembrance of me. So we have the command to baptize. We have the command to uh, observe the Lord's Supper. Now, nobody argues that there are at least two. Some do argue that there are more. Some don't even observe sacraments or ordinances at all. But that's by far a minority position. You're not going to find that too often. Catholics make the mistake of changing it to a saving sacrament. They say there are seven of them, and they don't have any problem doing that because they believe they can add as many as they like. Uh, The church is the one that gives the authority to the Scriptures, and so if the church says there are seven, there are seven, and they think they have the right to do it. So sacraments then really are, are, are another way that the Roman Catholic Church uses to control the people through rituals that they must administer. Now, Protestants, Baptists, Reformed Protestants reject that view of sacerdotalism. And so we say there are only two ordinances. Now, I find this to be uh, an interesting thing, that in the early part of uh, Baptist history, uh, Baptist history in this country, that there were many or some Baptists that believed that there were more than two ordinances, uh, and it caused a, a split among Baptists. Some, some uh, assumed that the original schism between Baptists in this country was an issue, uh, a problem over the doctrines of grace, that this is what Baptists split over. That is, people that don't believe doctrines of grace, some do, some don't. Well, almost all Baptists in this country, I mean, except for just a very, very small, minute number, believed in the core fundamentals that you find in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith that very strongly affirms the doctrines of grace. So what is the thing that they disagreed on? Why, why were some of the churches at that time unwilling to sign the Philadelphia Confession of Faith that explains the doctrines of grace? Well, the schism, the vision between them, was over ordinances, not the doctrines of grace. And this is because there were some of them who believed that there were as many as nine ordinances to be practiced by the church, whereas the Philadelphia Confession says that there's only two. And so they wouldn't sign the confession because it didn't include these other things, these other seven things that they said should be ordinances of the church. Now, to me, this is a fascinating part of history because you have people who assume that uh, a man by the name of Shubal Stearns who began the separate Baptist, differed with the rest of the Baptists on the doctrines of grace, when in fact their confessions of faith believed all the same things that the Philadelphia Confession confirmed, except, or affirmed, except this thing of ordinances. So they added these others. I'm not going to give you a list of what they all were, but let me just give you a sampling of them. They added things like laying on of hands. They said that is an ordinance of the church. They added washing feet. They added dedication of children, and they said, these are ordinances. Now, the one that stood out among those that I've just mentioned is the practice of washing feet. Still, in rural areas of the South, um, mostly in the mountains, 
you still find some foot-washing Baptists. And they said, that's what we need to do. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and we need to wash each other's feet. And so that is an ordinance of the church. Now, to back up just a little bit here, to talk about what Baptists believe about baptism, I have to say that I'm really, really happy to do this because I think it's such a critical and important topic. I think that our church needs to hear it from time to time. Um, you know, I, I remember when I became pastor of the church that this is one of the things I did. I taught on Baptist baptism. And when I'd finished that, there were members of the church who came to me and said, we haven't been baptized properly. And so it was kind of a strange thing that I began my ministry in Brian Baptist Church baptizing people that are already members of the church. But that's what happens when you don't emphasize the doctrines of the faith and you're not strong on these things. You run into these kinds of errors. So we have to focus on these very important things. It's been now about three years since I spoke specifically about baptism and the Lord's Supper, even though every quarter I have a message about it, but I don't, we don't really go into any details about uh, too much about the Supper itself and how we, how we actually celebrate it. So I think that there has, been some, there has been sufficient time that's gone by that we need to look at this again. I think we need to keep it for the, uh, the church often. And I'm sure that if I were to quiz you tonight on some of the important points about baptism, that probably... Some of you would miss them. For instance, if I said to you, well, give me, stand, somebody stand up and give me four qualifications for a scriptural baptism. Well, there may be some of you that couldn't do that, even though I've taught on that several times. But we have to be reminded of these things. So we're going to look at that as well. Qualifications. How, how is a person qualified? What do you have to have to have a scriptural baptism? But before we start on that part, the requirements, which is what we're going to do next week, there are two other important considerations about how Baptists are separated on this issue uh, from others, the issue of baptism. The first would be how hotly debated that the subject is. It is so extreme. Baptism has been so important in church history that it's caused the death of millions of Baptists. Now, I was talking to, to Matt this afternoon, I think, and he was telling me about someone that he knows that doesn't believe in baptism. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to understand why that millions of people in the history of the church died over this issue of baptism wasn't extremely important. But that's what's happened. You can't deny that in church history. Millions of Baptists have been put to death because of the issue of baptism. Now, if you, if you doubt that, take a look at the little pamphlet that we have, The Trail of Blood by J.M. Carroll. And it details, or not details, there's not a lot of detail in it, but it, it tells you about millions of Baptists that have been killed. Uh, if you don't have that book, ask for it. There are free copies in the office for your, for your reading pleasure. We're happy to give that to you. But that, that documents some of the, the issue of baptism, and that became a main doctrine that caused others to tear through Baptist congregations. And here's the reason for it. When you attach salvation to baptism, as Roman Catholics do, then you make baptism a major disagreement between us. It elevates it to a level that it should not be, and that is the level of the difference between heaven and hell. And so when we as Baptists said that it's not, baptism is not a requirement for salvation, the thing that happened next is that we're condemned as heretics. We've attacked the doctrine of salvation in their minds. And so when Baptists rebaptized people that came out of the Catholic Church, that was actually repudiation of Roman Catholic authority. 
We were saying in that, we don't respect your authority as a true church. And so we're going to rebaptize the people that come from you because they don't have a scriptural baptism. And so that put us in a, in a different relationship with those churches. We were saying that churches like the Roman Catholic Church were fully apostate, that they were no true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the name Baptist actually came out of that controversy. We were first called Anabaptists. The word simply means rebaptizers. We were called that because we baptized people that came from, from uh, other faiths because we didn't consider them to be true believers in Christ, if they, uh, those churches rather, that baptized them to be true churches of Christ. And so what happened then is when the Roman Catholic Church, which from the inception actually was confederate with the state, to defy the Roman Catholic Church, which is, which is combined with the state, would actually be an act of anarchy. It would be a, an act of treason against the state. Now, the difference between us and them was ramped up from a religious disagreement, which is an act of conscience, a moral act of conscience. It's ramped up to a matter of treason. Because now, it's not only against the church, it's also against the state. So what do you do when people commit treason? Well, often, treason is a cause to be put to death. And that's what baptism was. Uh, you're put to death for, for teaching that baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Now, historically then, baptism became of paramount importance. You could be killed for defending the truth of it. And the remarkable thing about it, that even though this belief about baptism could cause death, Baptist people never gave up on it. And you know why they wouldn't give up on it? That's the next observation. We cannot surrender to a doctrine that says that baptism is a sacrament necessary for salvation because that would deny salvation by grace through faith alone. And again, that's Paul's argument in Galatians. So we can't surrender baptism because without baptism, we, we destroy the church. The church disappears unless there is true baptism. Now, going back to Acts 2, Acts 2, the ones that are saved on Pentecost were added to the church through baptism. Verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I mean, the obvious question is, added to what? To what were they added? They were added to the church. That's what the baptism did. And that's a formula that has not changed. Baptism throughout the scriptures is always in relation to the organization of new churches. So wherever the gospel is preached, there is baptism. And if you take away baptism by abandoning it, abandoning it by, by distorting the meaning of it, by changing it to something that causes people to be saved, then you've got a doctrine that cannot add people to the church. You destroy baptism, you've destroyed how people are added, eventually the church completely dies out. You have to be right on the doctrine of baptism. And so, in other words, we would say that baptism is critical for church constitution. No baptism, no church. Now, notice again that baptism and church membership are prerequisites to the Lord's Supper. So now we say, well, you can't have, church, you can't have a church without baptism. Then we're also saying you can't have the Lord's Supper without baptism. So you've destroyed everything in the process by destroying baptism. Now, other groups... Some of them, they don't really have a problem with it. Many churches don't even have what we consider to be membership. Uh, church 
the meaning of church actually becomes a misnomer for them. Uh, being a, a church that, that practices proper baptism, it's not important for them because it's not essential for them to get people together. It's not essential for them to build a building. It's not essential for them to have a meeting. It's not essential to raise money to pay a pastor to pastor them. You don't have to have baptism for that. But neither can you have a true church without it. And so what you have then are these organizations that are, are in effect 501c3 corporations, not churches. They're, they're just an arm of the government, you might say. Corporations and not churches. Now Baptists then cannot alter the stand on baptism because without that there would not be any Baptist. Now some think that the word Baptist contains baptism because we believe that baptism saves. I mean, that's the common thing. They're Baptists because they believe baptism is so important that it saves you. That's not why that we're called Baptists and why we regard baptism so highly. We regard it extremely highly because we can't have a church without it. We can't, we can't uh, constitute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ without proper baptism. So it has nothing to do with saving us. It has everything to do with whether we can actually have a true church. So we ruin baptism. We forfeit the right to be called a true church. So should we review it? Should we look at it? Certainly. It's critical, isn't it? Something that's extremely important. This is the thing that makes me a member of this church. And so certainly I do want to look at it. So this, this message is to set the stage. We've kind of primed the pump here for a discussion about scriptural baptism. We want to be discerning about these things. Um, we take the scriptural meaning of these things because the survival of the church of Christ depends upon it. So we never, we never want to distort baptism. Now let me, let me leave you with a riddle tonight. Uh, this is a riddle that's better than Samson's riddle. So if you have to plow with somebody's heifer to figure out the answer to it, I'm going to say that's okay. You can do that. So I'm, which, which came first? Here's your riddle. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? That's not the real question. That's just the lead into the real question. If the church cannot exist without baptism, and yet the church is necessary to give the authority of baptism, then which came first, the baptism or the church? You think about that a while. You come back next week and maybe you'll have an answer for that. You tell me how and why, which came first. And we'll, maybe we'll get into that. And so I'll just leave with that. Good night and God bless. You kill each other over the answer to that one. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truths that we find in it. Lord, we want to do everything that's according to Scripture. It does us no good to come together and meet and call ourselves a church if we don't abide by the very principles of the Word of God that make us what we are. We don't have the ability to constitute a church on our own. We don't have the ability to assign meanings to doctrines that the Scriptures says, say is not there. And we have to believe the truth if we're going to be a true church of yours. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to examine these things. Stay true to them, not to give up on them. Our Baptist forefathers wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it under the threat of death and death itself. So, Lord, in this time, help us to stand for the truth and help us to understand in a better way why we are Baptist people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. 
If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.